Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science. This week, we're talking about asparagus pea. For real. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. How are ya? I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're ready for another week of sciencing. This week, we really are going to talk about asparagus pea. You thought I wasn't going to do it. You really thought I was bluffing, but nope. I am nothing if not a woman of my word. I said last week that if I got no new questions, I was going to talk about asparagus pea. So when I got no new questions this week, that decided it. The topic of this week's episode is asparagus pea. But before we get into the meat and potatoes and asparagus of it all, I figured we should cover some baseline info, some background info. Like, let's understand regular pea before we get into asparagus pea. Am I right? Let's, like, work our way up to, you know, the master level of asparagus pea. (laughs) That brings us to today's questions. We have two questions today. The first one is, what is pea anyway? (laughs) But maybe if you want to be more formal about it, you can say, how is urine produced? The second question is, what's up with asparagus pea? And then again, if you want to be like more formal, more professional with it, you could say like, what causes the bad odor in urine after ingesting asparagus? <laughs> so let's get into it. The first question is, how is urine produced? We as humans... Uh, need to stay hydrated, right? It's like one thing that we need to do in order to survive. So we drink things. We drink water, coffee, juice, etc. Um, and we might notice that a little while after we drink something, we have to pee. So you might be wondering, how does the water get from my mouth to my bladder? Like what's the path that it takes to get there? That's exactly what we're going to talk about today with this first question. So the water that we drink, um, that we swallow, gets absorbed at various points of our digestive system, including the small and large intestines. And the water is absorbed from our digestive tract and it flows into our bloodstream. Our blood is made up of cellular components, so you might have heard of something like red blood cells or white blood cells or platelets, but there's also a fluid component or a liquid component called plasma. And this plasma component is made of mostly, not totally, but mostly water. So the blood, the plasma, and the cells flow around your body, like we talked about in the heart episode a few weeks back. And the blood goes everywhere. It goes to your brain, to your gut, to your heart muscle, to your kidney. And the kidney is where we're going to start our focus today. We're going to be talking about the renal system, which is made up of the kidneys, the ureters, the bladder, and the urethra. We're going to start with the most complicated part of the renal system, which is also like the first step, which is the kidney. So most people have two kidneys, some people don't, but most people do have two kidneys, 
And the kidneys are highly vascularized organs, which means that they have lots of blood vessels. The kidneys actually receive about one-fifth of the cardiac output. So every time your heart pumps blood out of it, about 20% of the blood that leaves your left ventricle goes to your kidneys first. That's a lot. That's a very high percentage of your cardiac output going to your kidneys. Um, But that's because the kidney function is so important. And the main goal, the main function of the kidney is regulation. The kidney regulates the concentration of salt and urea and water in your blood. And it excretes out all of the extra that the body doesn't need. So let's talk about how it does that. Blood enters your kidney through the renal artery, which is an artery. It moves away from your heart. Um, It carries oxygenated blood to your kidney until it gets to the site of action, the functional unit of the kidney, which is called the nephron, of which there are about 1 million per kidney. So each kidney has over 1 million nephrons, and it's at the site of the nephron where the regulation takes place. So arteries reach the nephron, they deliver blood to capillaries, which again is the site of transfer, gas transfer, nutrient transfer, waste transfer. Um, It delivers blood to capillaries that are located in this little bulb called the glomerulus. These capillaries are specialized for the glomerulus and are slightly more porous, which allows for more filtration of substances through the kidney. Um, But it's not too porous, so it keeps larger molecules like the red blood cells and the white blood cells from filtering into the kidney. But at the glomerulus, fluid, so like some of the plasma in the blood, and small molecules like salts, like glucose, like amino acids, they're all filtered out of the blood and pulled into the glomerulus. And that solution of fluid and small molecules is called filtrate. The kidneys filter about 180 liters of fluid a day, um, which is a lot of fluid. (laughs) And if we were to excrete all of the fluid that the kidney filters, we would lose all of our electrolytes and all of the fluid in our bodies in just a couple of hours. So it's up to the rest of the nephron, the rest of the kidney, after the filtration in the glomerulus, to pull back fluid and electrolytes that our body needs so that it can recycle them, um, but still keep excreting what's extra. So get rid of the leftovers, get rid of what's not needed, but pull back what we can reuse, what we can still utilize in our bodies. So the filtrate pulled out of the glomerulus, that's like the fluid and the small molecules, they'll collect in an area called the Bowman's capsule. And this Bowman's capsule will then push or direct the filtrate to the tubular system, which is exactly how it sounds. It's totally tubular. Um, That brings me back to like rocket power. I don't know, tubular reminds me of rocket power. Anyway, um, but it actually is. It's like a system of tubes that goes throughout the nephron, Um, like a pipe system of sorts. Uh, It kind of honestly looks like a roller coaster. 
there's a lot of like ups and downs and twists and turns. Um, but essentially the filtrate will flow through these tubes throughout the nephron. Um, and the tubular system is divided into different segments. So as the filtrate goes through the tube system, goes through the pipe system, um, goes along the roller coaster, if we want to stick with that analogy, um, it reaches different checkpoints that are responsible for doing different things. Um, so we're going to walk through some of the key checkpoints along the nephron and talk about what is responsible at each of those checkpoints. So we're going to start with the first site after the Bowman's capsule. So start, well, let's start from the very beginning. So the renal artery goes to the glomerular capillary and pulls out the filtrate into the Bowman's capsule. And then the Bowman's capsule pushes the filtrate, the fluid plus the small molecules, into the tubular system. The first point of the tubular system is called the proximal tubule. It's called that because it's close in proximity to the beginning, to the glomerulus. At the proximal tubule, water and salts are reabsorbed. And what I mean by that is that the water and salts that were first filtered out of the blood to become filtrate then get pulled back. So they get pulled out of the filtrate, out of the tubular system, and pulled back into the blood. That's what we mean by reabsorbed. So water and salts are reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. About 65% of the reabsorption of water and salts that happens throughout the nephron happens at the proximal tubule. So it's like at the very beginning, most of the water and the salts that got pulled out of blood will return to the blood. At this point, also um, glucose and amino acids and like vitamins and electrolytes uh, will also be uh, reabsorbed. One way these solutes or things that are dissolved in the water, that's another word for solutes, um, one way that these solutes move from the tubule system back to the blood is by diffusion. So here, solutes like ions or molecules, in diffusion, they kind of float wherever they want to go. Typically, things like to be in a sense of equilibrium. So if there is a concentration difference or a concentration gradient where there is a very high concentration of salt inside the pipe um, and a very low concentration of salt in the blood outside of the pipe, the salt will tend to move out of the filtrate, leak out of the pipe, and go into the blood as it tries to spread out and reach an equilibrium. So when the pipe or the tubular system is permeable to something like salt or glucose or water, it means that that thing is able to diffuse freely and spread out as it tries to equilibrate across the wall, across the barrier. So in the proximal tubule, a lot of water and salt and glucose are able to diffuse out of the filtrate back into the blood because the proximal tubule is permeable to salt, permeable to water. And it does that in order to reach equilibrium, but it doesn't reach complete equilibrium quite yet. 
Next up after the proximal tubule is the loop of Henle. The loop of Henle looks like a big loop-de-loop of a roller coaster. Um, and that's kind of why I use the roller coaster analogy, just because it reminds me of like a big, it's sort of like an upside down hill, honestly. At least in all the diagrams, it looks like it, it falls fast and then it comes back up. Um, so the loop of Henley is divided into subsections. Um, firstly, there's the thin descending limb, which goes down. And then a thin ascending limb, which goes up. And then the top portion of the ascending limb is the thick ascending limb. So each of these subsection, subsections, pardon, are responsible for different uh, permeabilities. So in the thin descending limb, which is right after the proximal tubule, that portion of the pipe is permeable to water. So water can flow out of the filtrate at that point but not a lot of salts are permeable at that point. So it's really just water that's moving out of the filtrate as the filtrate flows through that part of the pipe. Then when it gets to the bottom of the loop and it starts to come back up, it reaches the thin ascending limb. And this portion of the pipe is permeable to sodium, calcium, no. When I said calcium, I totally meant chloride classic mix-up. Um, so the thin ascending limb is permeable to sodium, chloride, and urea. Urea is a byproduct of the breakdown of proteins or protein metabolism. So when we break down proteins, uh, urea is sort of like the waste product. So when we break down or metabolize proteins, urea is the byproduct. A lot of urea gets excreted in the urine, um, which is why it's of note to mention in like kidney filtration regulation stuff. Um, okay, so that's the thin ascending limb. The thick ascending limb, so as we get closer to the top of the loop, back up to the top, the uh, thickness of the pipe gets larger, gets thicker. So the thick ascending limb, uh, at that point, as the filtrate passes through, the tube is permeable to potassium, bicarbonate, magnesium, and calcium ions. And these are basically all just like salts, essentially. So when there's a lot of salt in the body, um, not a lot of salt will be pulled out of the filtrate because it'll be wanting to reach an equilibrium. So if there's a lot of salt in the body, it's okay with getting rid of a lot of salt. If there's not a lot of salt in the body, the body wants the body needs salt. So it will pull the salt out of the filtrate in order to keep them, to preserve them, because it needs them for functions. Um, so the whole point of having like sections that are permeable to salts are to regulate the concentration of salts in the body. If there's too much, they'll let it stay in the filtrate so that it can eventually be excreted. But if there's not enough salt in the body, it'll pull the salt out of the filtrate back into the blood so that it can reuse and recycle those salts. By the end of the loop of Henle, um, you might have noticed that it's mostly the solutes that are permeable and able to come out or go into the filtrate. 
um, water doesn't move at that point, uh, like the second half of the loop of Henley, just the solutes. That means that the filtrate becomes what's called hypoosmotic, which is another way to say that the concentration of molecules in the filtrate is low. So in other words, there's not a lot of salt in the filtrate, but there is a lot of water because water hasn't been able to flow out or flow in, but salt has been able to move. So typically the filtrate is very diluted by the end of the loop of Henle. Um, so not a lot of salt in a very large volume of water. So that's the loop of Henle. Next we have the distal tubule. Um, it's named distal because it's mad distant from the glomerulus. It's pretty far. It's further than the proximal tubule, which is why it's called the distal tubule. In the first section of the distal tubule, the permeability is similar to that of the end of the loop of Henle. So most of the solutes are moving. So like bicarbonate, potassium, sodium, etc. Um, so the fluid in the pipe, the fluid on the roller coaster is still pretty dilute. There's still not a lot of um, salt or solutes in the fluid, but still a lot of water. Towards the end of the distal tubule uh, is where the tube or the pipe starts to become a little more permeable to water. But this depends on the presence of something called the antidiuretic hormone or ADH. So diuretic refers to like diuresis. It's the loss of water or fluid, the excretion of fluid. So an antidiuretic will want to prevent the loss of the fluid or in other words, it will want to keep the fluid. ADH, or antidiuretic hormone, is a hormone that's produced by the hypothalamus, and it's released in our body as a response to blood pressure sensors and salt concentration sensors in our body. When ADH is present, so when ADH is released, um, it facilitates the reabsorption of water along the tubule. So what that means is that more water is getting pulled out of the filtrate and back into the blood when ADH is present. That means that less water is lost eventually when the filtrate becomes urine um, because water is being pulled out of the filtrate. So the presence of ADH makes the filtrate more concentrated because it's pulling water out but it's leaving the salts behind so if we need a lot of water if we're very dehydrated ADH will work to pull as much water out of the filtrate as possible to prevent the loss of fluid when ADH is absent um, AD, it cannot facilitate more water getting reabsorbed, so very little water is reabsorbed during that process, which means that more water can stay in the filtrate, which eventually leads to diluted urine. So typically, if you're, you know, well hydrated, um, 
there's not a lot of ADH because there's not a huge need for your body to preserve as much water as possible because you kind of have a lot floating around. So that's the end of the distal tubule. As the distal tubule ends, it sort of feeds into the collecting duct, which is where many distal tubules combine their filtrate, which at this point I believe is considered urine in the collecting duct. So one of the functions of the collecting duct, in addition to water, which we'll get into in a second, but the collecting duct can also transport potassium and sodium as well as hydrogen and bicarbonate. And hydrogen and bicarbonate both control the acidity of urine. So when there's a lot of hydrogen, um, it becomes more acidic. When there's more bicarb, it becomes less acidic. Um, in addition to that, the collecting duct's main responsibility is the last chance to reabsorb water. Um, and just like the distal tubule, the ability of the collecting duct to reabsorb water depends on the presence of ADH, the antidiuretic hormone. So when there's lots of ADH around, that means that water is reabsorbed a lot easier. Less water is lost or excreted through the urine, which means that the urine is very concentrated. When there's not a lot of ADH around, that means that the water is not reabsorbed from the filtrate into the blood. In other words, it's kept into the filtrate, it's excreted as very dilute urine. So the filtrate goes through the roller coaster tubular system of the nephron, um, and eventually the filtrate reaches the collecting duct and it kind of pools into all of this leftover filtrate, which is now urine, into a long tube called the ureter. And the ureter comes out of the kidneys and it leads down into the bladder. So it brings the urine from the collecting ducts of the kidneys down into the bladder. And that's where it is stored until it is eventually excreted when it's released through the urethra during urination. And that's how pee works. <laughs> Hopefully that covers our first question about what pee is, how it's produced, so that we can get to the moment that we've all been waiting for. Question two, what's up with asparagus pee? So after eating asparagus, many people notice a unique odor the term that I've coined asparagus pee. Very cleverly, cleverly, is that a word? Probably not. Uh, very cleverly named. I can't really describe the odor in any other way than the way urine smells after eating asparagus. Like that's really the only way that I can describe it. Sometimes people are like, oh, well, something smells bad. Does it smell like rotten eggs? Does it smell like trash? Like, what does it smell like? It, no, it just smells like asparagus pee. There's really no, there's no other way to describe it than asparagus pee. So, there's that. <laughs> Turns out, what the smell is, is sulfur-based. I mean, of course it is. Sulfur compounds always smell awful. Like, sulfuric compounds that make hot springs and geysers smell like rotten eggs. Like sulfur is whenever you smell something bad, it's probably sulfur. 
Um, so getting back to the point, <laughs> in asparagus, there's an acid called asparagusic acid. It sounds like I just made it up, but I didn't. I swear. You can Google it. But asparagusic acid has sulfur in it. Classic. So when we eat asparagus, uh, it gets broken down, it gets digested, metabolized, and the, the, the today junior, and the metabolites of the asparagus that we eat get absorbed into our bloodstream, right? Just like everything that we eat, all of the nutrients that we eat get absorbed into our bloodstream so that they can get delivered to the parts of our bodies that need the nutrients, so the asparagusic acid, the byproducts of asparagus digestion, get absorbed into our blood. And then it's floating around our blood. We know that our blood gets filtered by our kidneys. So the blood and the sulfuric byproduct of asparagus gets filtered in our kidneys. The filtrate pulls out of the blood and travels through the nephron, the tubular system, like we just talked about. And the byproducts of asparagusic acid don't all get reabsorbed back into the blood, of course, because it's waste. We don't really need it. It's extra. So instead, it gets excreted through the urine, the stinky asparagus pee urine. And that's where asparagus pee comes from. <laughs> Here's a crazy thing that you might or might not believe. Um, an academic literature search for studies about asparagus pee uh, is actually incredibly underwhelming. There's really not that much interesting out there about asparagus pee. Um, I guess because it's not like life-threatening and it's not like people suffer from it. You know, it's not like a terminal illness or something. People don't feel the need to, like, follow the science behind asparagus pee. Um, doesn't make the big bucks, I guess, in big pharma. Um, but one study, I found a few studies that I'll talk about, um, two, really. But one study um, published by Dr. Facius and colleagues out of the companies ThinkQ in Switzerland and Takeda Pharmaceuticals in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they looked into the kinetic profile of population-based asparagus urinary odor. In this study, they crowdsourced clinical study data from Takeda Translational Research and the American Society for Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics, and they wanted to better describe the, quote, asparagus urinary odor perception kinetics and associated variability in healthy participants. A lot of people think that science is like all serious. It's all like life-changing, groundbreaking stuff. Sometimes it's just stupid crap like this, you know? <laughs> not, I, not, I don't mean that like these people hard work is stupid, but it's just like, it's not brain surgery, you know? Like, <laughs> but actually it does get pretty complicated. So what they did was they had um, participants self-report their observations of urine odor pre and or post treatment, up to 72 hours post treatment, where treatment, quote unquote, 
was eating a certain number of asparagus spears. They rated the odor, the participants rated the odor on a scale from zero, of which is no odor, to six, which is an intolerable or offensive odor. I should have mentioned that participants were screened prior to the study to test their ability to smell, their like olfactory perception, to make sure that they're able to smell. They didn't want people who were unable to smell to skew the study in any way. Um, anyway, once the self-reported data were collected from the t- participants, the researchers used a model-based analysis to try to characterize the degree of odor after the treatment, in air quotes. Um, right? Because, like, if you've ever experienced asparagus pee, you know that it, it lingers. It doesn't last forever, but, like, it, it's, it sticks around for a little while. So they wanted to try to define how long the odor stuck around for by fitting the self-reported data to a kinetic pharmacodynamic model. Basically, classifying the odor, how the odor level changes over time. They found that the absorption half-life, which was a measurement of how long it took between eating the asparagus to detecting the odor in the urine, was only about 25 minutes. But the excretion half-life, or a measure of how long it takes for the degree of the odor to decrease... Um, or like fall off, was over seven hours. So it can take a while for you to excrete out all of those sulfuric metabolites. Pretty crazy. Um, From what I noticed, the authors, I mean, I I honestly didn't give this paper uh, that much of a thoughtful critique. But from what I noticed, the authors didn't mention about how the degree of hydration might affect this. Like maybe if a person drinks more water and they're like peeing more, the excretion half time would be shorter probably. That would be my guess. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's another question for another study. Fund me, NIH. I'll do it. I'll organize it. Give me money. I want to learn more about asparagus pee. <laughs> I think it's my life calling. <laughs> What might be the funniest part of me bringing up asparagus pee as an idea for an episode um, is that in my, my research of asparagus pee, I learned that there are probably some people listening who have no clue what I'm talking about. Because based on a different study, a genome-wide association study, or GWAS, study that I cited below by Dr. Sarah Marked and colleagues, it seems like more than half of men, 58% of men, and 61.5% of women that were surveyed had asnomia, or in other words, they weren't able to identify a strong characteristic odor in urine after eating asparagus. In the study, they did some fancy genetics work that I'm not even going to pretend to understand right now, Um, but they were trying to see if there was like a genetic reason why half the population or almost half the population experienced the phenomenon of asparagus pee. So they wanted to see if there are genes 
one or multiple that contribute to the generation of the smell of asparagus pea and or the ability to detect the smell of asparagus pea. Like, you know how some people can't eat cilantro because to them it tastes like soap, but then other people love cilantro? Like, maybe there are genes that are sort of like that make some people either able to produce asparagus pea or, like, detect the smell of asparagus pea while other people don't. That was their goal of this study. I don't know. I just thought it was funny that I sort of outed myself as being one of the 38.5% of women who detect a strong characteristic urine odor after eating asparagus. <laughs> like that's that's pretty personal info actually. I feel very vulnerable sharing that with the public. <laughs> but we're all friends here, right? Like if this podcast hits your eardrums, we're friends. That's I make the rules and that's rule number 1. We're friends. Rule number two is that you're okay with me telling you that I'm an asparagus peer. And that just goes back to rule number one, that we're just such close friends that you know that information about me. So that's how that works. (laughs) Yeah, but I just wanted to share that because in my search, I learned that not everybody experiences asparagus pee. So when I read that, I was just picturing some of you listening to me saying like, oh, I'm going to talk about asparagus pee. And you being like, what the hell are you talking about, Sam? (laughs) Like, I don't know. That was just really funny to me. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to stop now. Okay. Um, (laughs) That episode was kind of fun. It was kind of dumb, kind of silly, but that's what science is sometimes. Sometimes science is fun and dumb and silly, and that's okay. I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Well, all right. That's all for this week. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SamSplainingSci. You can connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions to samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want Sam Splain to you, ask away. I got one question in today um, that I got just before recording, um, so I didn't get to answer it this week, but I'm really excited to answer it next week. Um, But yeah, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out on social media or on the website. There's going to be plenty of episodes, so we'll have many more opportunities for Sam-splaining. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next week. Bye.